turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening to the Hugh Hewitt Show today. I'm glad to welcome back Dr. Tony Fauci. Good morning, Dr. Fauci. How are you? Good morning, Hugh. How are you doing? I'm great. Uh, I want to dive first into the science, Dr. Variants. Uh, when will you expect to reach stability with the virus? Meaning that you are sure it cannot evolve into something more deadly or more contagious or more evasive than the current vaccines can cope with. You know, Hugh, you, you'll never reach that as long as there's virus circulating in the community. Viruses don't mutate unless they replicate. If you prevent their replication by suppressing the spread in the community, at that point, you'll reach the area where you're talking about where it's not going to change any. But as long as there's like right now we have in our own country about 50,000 new infections each day with that much viral dynamics going on, there's always the threat and the reality of the evolution of variants. So the best way to stop this is to just suppress the virus to a very, very low level. Now, doctor, I don't think people talk about worst case scenarios much, probably because there's not much upside in scaring people. But I believe in transparency. The book, The Great Influenza, pointed out to me, and I didn't know this, that the 1918 influenza went through 12 iterations in the summer of 18. But it actually got started in 17. When will we be, do you think, will be vast a danger point in the virus's ability to go very bad for very many people? Yeah. Great question, Hugh. And that's the reason why we often say a global pandemic requires a global response, because even if we and I believe we will within a quite a reasonable period of time suppress the virus in this country and in places in the developed world, the European Union, Canada, Australia, et cetera, where there's the resources to vaccinate essentially the entire population, then you could get good suppression and feel comfortable. However, as long as there's virus replicating in a robust way anywhere in the world, there's always the danger that mutants and variants will evolve and ultimately get back to whatever country successfully suppressed it. So that's the reason why you're hearing a lot about a global effort to suppress this, because we've got to suppress it throughout the entire world, because if you're doing fine in this country and then there are regions of the world where there's outbreaks, the virus is going to continue to mutate. And ultimately, because of the extraordinary extensive travel we have throughout the world, it's ultimately going to get back to the countries that suppressed it. So that's the reason why we should have a commitment. And we do through a number of mechanisms, including COVAX, to make sure that virtually all the countries in the world will have the capability of suppressing it. So, Dr. Fauci, what happened in 1918 when it eventually went away, even though we didn't have the vaccine? We never got a vaccine for 1918. 
but it eventually faded away, even though it circulated around the world. What happened there that we can't rely on happening here? Well, the, the only trouble with that, Hugh, is that it killed between 50 and 100 million people right. worldwide in a population that was one third the size of the global population now, which means that would be equivalent to killing between 150 and 300 million people. So when you just ravage the world like that, after a while, you run out of susceptible host, you get herd immunity, and that's it. We don't want to go there. We want to stop it before it does that kind of devastation, which is the reason why the answer is the proper implementation of vaccines. Now, so, doctor, is it still a possibility that such a ravaging could occur? I believe it is, but I'm not a scientist. I just talked to my official toxicologist who's a relative who says, you can't rule it out. I don't know if it's five or 10 percent, but you can't rule it out. Can you rule it out? You know, you that you never could rule those things out. But the likelihood of that happening is extraordinarily low, given the fact that we have multiple highly efficacious vaccines. So, I mean, right now, for example, you know, we've vaccinated completely about 13 or more, 14 percent of the population and even maybe 24 percent have at least one dose. By the time we get into the late spring and early summer, we're going to have a lot more people vaccinated. So I think the likelihood of the scenario that you're pointing out, Hugh, is going to be extremely unlikely. Is there any evidence that it's become any of the variants that we know of yet have become more dangerous for children than the pre than the original or the variants. You know, there is a suggestion that one of them is easily infecting children, which means, you know, children still on the whole do much, much better than adults. If you look at the rate of hospitalizations per hundred thousand people and you look at those charts, children are way, way off on the side of the chart where there's very little hospitalization. But some of the variants, if they have the capability of infecting children more readily, you're ultimately going to see more serious disease in children. Now, doctor, I asked a few of my friends, I said, Dr. Fauci's coming back on Monday. What are your best questions? Great question from a friend who had been part of the thousands of Americans who stepped forward for the trials, did the Moderna trial, uh, got successfully vaccinated. He is wondering, when does he have to get revaccinated? When does his, the trial people were first in line, they're six months into it. Do you have any idea yet when they've got to get a booster shot? You know, no, we don't. And that's the reason why we observe people for up to two years or even longer following vaccination. Right now, we know things look good at least up to six months and likely much longer But the only way you know is you've got to follow people and find out when that level of antibody falls below a certain level and people start getting infected again. So that's one of the things you only learn by observation, Hugh. And is the effort in place to observe enough people to come to a reliable conclusion, doctor? Okay. Um, Emily Oster, an economist at Brown, wrote a piece in, in The Atlantic last week, which you probably read, Dr. Fauci, read everything. The science on transmission by the vaccinated is still hazy. I received my second dose on Saturday. Can I transmit the virus? Well, you know, whoever asked that question, is, 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 it's a good question. Right now, we haven't ruled out completely that even though you are, and I'm, I'm like you, Hugh, I'm vaccinated also, about whether or not if we get exposed, we could get infected and have no symptoms because we're vaccinated 
And if there's enough virus in our nasopharynx, theoretically, we could infect someone else, which is the reason why we ask people to continue to wear masks. Having said that, as the weeks and months go by, more and more papers are coming out saying that the likelihood of transmitting from a vaccinated person gets lower and lower because some studies are looking at the level of virus in the nasopharynx, and it's either absent or very, very low. I would predict, though you just got to be careful with predictions, that after several more months, Hugh, we're going to get enough data to say that the likelihood of transmitting an infection from an asymptomatic vaccinated person is extremely low. That will be good news. Now I want to talk, my toxicologist asked me to ask you about therapies other than vaccine, pointing out that Lilly has a combo therapy that's been approved for uh, reuse. Regeneron has a cocktail that reduces the viral load, the time to alleviate symptoms. Do you think that we're selling those therapies hard enough for the anti-vaxxer crowd and for people generally to know about that they can ask them and then they are available enough to even tell people about them? You know, the answer is there. there's not a big supply of them, number one. Number two, one of the constraints of that approach, you is that it's got to be given intravenously, which means you've got to have an infusion center or get somebody into a clinic or a hospital. That has been the logistic reason why it has not been widely used. The other thing we know from the clinical trials is that if you wait a bit until the disease progresses somewhat, the monoclonal antibodies don't work very well at all. They work really well if you get people early. And early means symptoms that are not yet severe enough to get you into the hospital. Once you get advanced symptomatology requiring hospital intervention, the likelihood of a monoclonal antibody being effective is less than when you give it early in the course of disease. Let me set this next question up neutrally because I have been deluged with information about ivermectin. I was in fact prescribed ivermectin a few months ago by my uh, internist who has been my internist for 20 years when I was exposed quite definitely. I didn't develop it, doesn't mean that the ivermectin worked. What's your opinion, Dr. Fauci? The answer is you, we don't know. I mean, there have been a number of studies that have not really been well done in the sense of the classical randomized placebo-controlled trial. So that question is still open. We don't know the answer to that. Some studies now are looking at it to determine if it is. You know, we used to think people were claiming that colchicine worked also. There have been a couple of studies now that I think have closed the book on that, that it looks like it doesn't. But I think the situation with ivermectin, still no evidence that I'm convinced that it works, but again, not any evidence to convince that it doesn't work. So studies are still going on. And my doctor said, we know it can't hurt you. Is that your right. opinion as well? So, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a drug that has very few serious toxicities. All right. Uh, do you trust the Russian and or the Chinese vaccine to be efficacious? You know, I, I'm assuming that they are. I mean, certainly the, the data on the Russian vaccine, I've taken a look at some of the reports. It looks pretty good. The Chinese one very well might be good. I haven't had the opportunity to, to examine the data to the extent that I would feel comfortable. But the Russian one, I believe, is, is quite effective. Well, that's interesting. Now, the Wall Street Journal on Friday, doctor, reported that China resisted international pressure for an investigation it saw as an attempt to sign blame. 
delayed the probe for months, secured veto rights over participants, and insisted its scope encompass other countries as well, the journal found. If the Chinese can exercise that kind of authority over the WHO, is the WHO efficacious for determining the origins? Well, again, Hugh, a good question, and that's one of the reasons why when we went back into WHO, I had the opportunity, as you might recall, on the first day of President Biden's uh, uh, tenure as as president, he had asked me to uh, address the executive board of WHO and announce we're coming back in uh, and we're going to resume our responsibilities uh, regarding support. But one of the important points in my statement was that we were very serious about reforms of WHO. So we want to get back in. We feel that it is a necessary organization. The world needs a WHO, but they do need reforms. And the reforms relate to what you just said, that there cannot be undue influence by any country on decisions of WHO. It's got to be based purely on considerations of global health. Now, I know you're not uh, an international investigator, but from what you've read, do you believe that the People's Republic of China presently has undue influence over the WHO? You know, I, I don't think as much as people are saying, Hugh. I mean, there's a big story. People talk about that. But I don't believe that that's the case. It may have been in the beginning, but I don't see that right now. Right. A vaccine skeptic, another one of my colleagues, uh, David Drucker of the Washington Examiner. A vaccine skeptic tells you, Dr. Fauci, quote, what's the point? Since you're saying I still have to wear a mask indefinitely and I can't immediately go back to living a normal life, what is the point of getting a vaccine? Well, first of all, I have never said to you that you have to wear a mask indefinitely. I did not say, I never said that. I said that after you're vaccinated, until we prove, apropos of your good question a little, a few minutes ago, that there's no virus in a person's nasopharynx who's been vaccinated. Until then, that's why we're suggesting of uh, wearing a mask. I never said we should wear it indefinitely, for sure. And the reason you get vaccinated is to save your life because that's, you may be in the situation. I mean, that's a really good reason. Yeah, well, that's what I, I think, too. I, it, it, why bother not harming? Now, you have a media strategy, doctor, and I don't know who sets it up for you. Heavily weighted to the traditionally elite outlets. Meet the Press, of which I'm a member, and, and CBS and NBC. Have you appeared on Newsmax yet? Have you appeared on Dennis Prager's show? Do you avoid the places where there might be more contention, but also a different audience? No, I don't, uh, Hugh, at all. Seriously, I mean, I, I, I say yes to a wide variety of requests. I've been on Fox multiple times. I mean, so I don't, I don't, uh, I don't shy away from that. All right. No. Lessons from the pandemic that will prevent the next one. When you sit back and you start making the yellow pad notes on how do we prevent, you know, a hundred year event doesn't mean every hundred years. It means once a hundred years. It could be next year. What do we the, do differently this time? Well, there's a, a, a number of things. First of all, we've got to make sure that we have a good global health security network, that we are interconnected and very transparent in what goes on at any part of the world so that we can actually respond rapidly. Number two, we've got to bolster up our own local public health capability, which really 
over the years has been, you know, uh, subject to attrition that really was unfortunate, maybe kind of uh, victims of our own success because we've done so well over the years with vaccines and antibiotics. But the local public health response has not been optimal. And we knew that from the situation regarding how we were trying to do identification, isolation and contact tracing. And we were not really that successful in doing that. The other thing, Hugh, is something that, you know, I know you've spoken, I've spoken about a fair amount. When you're having a common enemy like a virus, you cannot address that in the arena of divisiveness that we've had in this country. And not not taking one side or the other, but when you have the kind of divisiveness that we've had in this country over the last year during the outbreak, that's made it very difficult to get a common unified response against the virus. Uh, so, I mean, there are like, again, there are a number of lessons. There are public health lessons. There are scientific lessons. And there are lessons of how we as a nation approach a common enemy, the virus, as opposed to fighting with each other. And, and Dr. Fauci, apropos of that, I always tell people, everybody is doing the best that they can. And everybody makes mistakes. Do you agree with me on that? Absolutely. Right? Yeah. What is the most surprising thing about the disease, scientifically? As you study it and you've been doing this your whole life, what surprised you about this disease? Yeah, a, a characteristic of the disease, Hugh, that was, was, was unique, puzzling. And then when we really were found out about it, it really changed the, the approach that we took. And that is you have a disease that has the capability of already killing 535 or more thousand people in the United States, a deadly disease for people who are susceptible, the elderly and those with underlying conditions. At the same time, about one third to 40 percent of the people have absolutely no symptoms. We've just never seen anything like that before. Usually when you have a disease that kills these many people, you may have a small fraction of people don't have symptoms, but not 40%. The other thing that has really puzzled us early on, but now we know it very clearly, is that between 50 and 60% of all the transmissions come from someone who has no symptoms. So you get infected from somebody who has no symptoms. Generally, when you have respiratory infections, historically, the outbreaks are driven by people who have symptoms. Occasionally, you get a small percentage of the transmissions are from people with no symptoms. But to have 50 to 60 percent of all the transmissions coming from someone without symptoms makes it very difficult to really appreciate the, the, you know, the under the radar screen spread in the community. And that's where we really got hit badly. Because that was going on in our country to a much greater extent before we really fully realized what was going on. Dr. Fauci, why are obese people so susceptible? I understand great. heart disease, I understand, but I do not understand obesity. You know, that's a great question. I think it's a couple of things. I think it's the mechanical movement of the diaphragm to expand and contract your lungs. And we know that because people do better when you put them prone as opposed to supine. So one of the things that obese people have, they don't have the capability of easily 
inhaling and exhaling because of the constraints on their plasticity of the lung. That's one of the things. The other thing I believe is that obese people, particularly morbidly obese people, have a much higher rate of the other underlying comorbidities which get a serious outcome. That's diabetes, hypertension, heart disease. The incidence in a morbidly obese person of those other diseases is much higher than the general population. Ought we to have begun last year, ought we to begin now, an effort to get people to lose weight? Yeah, I mean, obesity is an epidemic in this country. I mean, that's really one of the unfortunate situations. Uh, And there are so many reasons for that, you know, that date back from the time a person is a child, the kind of diet that they get exposed to. That's something. and, And it's particularly disproportionate in certain demographic groups. I mean, African-American and Latinx population clearly almost certainly related to the lack of accessibility early on when they're children of a completely varied and healthy diet. Okay, I'm wrapping up, doctor, because I don't want to take too much of your time. Sunk costs are an economic term. They are very hard for people to deal with. If you're studying the data, have you led to any conclusion on lockdowns? Because we have some states like California that went in hard for lockdowns. They're not doing any better. Indeed, they might be doing worse than Florida, which did not go in for lockdowns at all. So the sunk costs on lockdown are enormous and prevent people from dealing with it objectively. But you understand sunk costs. Did we make mistakes on lockdowns? You know, Hugh, I don't think so. I I think the lockdown situation is really very complicated because there have been some states that said they locked down. And when you look at the actual you know, tracking them on GPS is about how much they locked down. It isn't nearly as much as was claimed. In fact, they did a, a comparison of the European lockdown versus the United States lockdown. And they did it by GPS. How many people go to the stores? How many people go to the parks? And when Europe locked down, they locked down a heck of a more strictly than we did. And, and, and it has efficacy. You believe yeah. it worked? Yes, it does. I mean, it has efficacy in suppressing the outbreak, but it also, as you say, and I agree, has significant economic consequences. All right. Two more questions. One's just a historical factor. Uh, a new book out by Josh Rogan suggests that in an early, a late January meeting, Pottinger and O'Brien wanted a shutdown of China inbound. You and Mnuchin were opposed to it. Is that correct? No. <laughs> I think that that simplifies the discussion. So, I mean, I often get that by people say, uh, I said, no, don't do it. Uh, That's not the case. I had brought up the point. Historically, when you're trying to shut down a country during an outbreak, sooner or later, it gets spread throughout the world and and you shut down this country and it comes in from another country. I never said I was against shutting down. I was giving a caveat about being careful If you shut down, as a matter of fact, you may not get the total effect you want. When the president decided that he was going to shut down, I agreed with that at that point. I just gave a caveat about being careful when you do it. But as all of a sudden the history has evolved, everybody says I was against shutting down. I wasn't. I was giving some cautionary warnings about it. All right. My very last question is high science. Uh, It has to do with the Wuhan lab at which this is suspected of escaping. 
they were doing something called gain of function research. I know you know what that means. It took me a long time to get my lawyer arms around it. Did the NIH support gain of function research? It sounds very dangerous to me. No, no, we don't. We have guidelines now that do not support that kind of research in those circumstances. We support some form of gain of function, which is appropriate. We did not support gain of function research there. Do you think that had something to contribute to the Do you believe in the escape from the lab theory? No, I mean, I think that I mean, obviously, you you can never rule that out completely. I mean, it's just one of those things you can't. But the evidence that of, of, of the sequencing of the virus in bats makes it very, very unlikely. They were doing things that were interpreted as being gain of function that I don't think fall under the real strict category of that. But we years ago, Hugh, made a, uh, a, a policy that in order to before you, you uh, support any gain of function, it's got to go through multiple reviews that go up to the Department of Health and Human Services. So years and years ago, we were doing we were supporting among our grantees, mostly in influenza, not in COVID-19, mostly in influenza. But then because of concerns, the constraints that are put on gain-of-function uh, uh, experiments are really rather stringent. So an allegation was made that the NIAI had supported the Wuhan lab gain-of-function research. That's not true? We supported by a subcontractor. We gave a grant to a person in the United States who subcontracted a collaboration with Wuhan, but that was not gain-of-function research. Okay, very important to get that. Okay, I have time for one last question, doctor. I'm now vaccinated. Can I go see my grandkids? Yes. As long as your grandkids are healthy and don't have an underlying condition that would make them really seriously at risk if they got infected. If they're healthy young grandkids, you can go see them without a mask in their home. Have fun. You made, you made my day, doctor. Thank you for your time. You're always generous. Keep doing the good work. Thank you, Hugh. Always good to be with you. Thank you.